knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi and welcome to Theology Gals and I'm Colleen and I still have Angela sitting in for Ashley and I'm hoping that when this episode airs that Ashley will have had her baby. We'll, we'll put it on Twitter. We'll put it on Facebook when she does. As of now, which we're recording it on Thursday. We she... are on Baby Watch. <laughs> right. <laughs> we're still on Baby. She's now past her due date. And I, I, I always went past my due date, except for when I, they had, they induced me like on my, on my due date with, um, Let's see, with Ian, because he was stressed. And then with Austin, I was due on December 31st. I always had to be induced. My doctor said, when would you like to have this baby? I said, well, before the end of the year would be nice. And so he was born on the 30th. <laughs> and I know some people are freaking out. You didn't have to have him induced that early. But you know what? We did. Part of it is that my mom was visiting and she was going to have to return at some point and Anyways, doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, so, Angela, I know you just moved into a new house. What's it been like? Almost three months. Um, we're getting close. Well, we're um, just past two months. Okay. So you're so right now you are doing all of the. Let's fix up the house we moved into. Yes. We're doing all the let's fix up the house so we can sell it. Yes. Which we're hoping we're, to do. It's just taking longer than we thought. But you're doing all that now, right? Oh, yes. Um, our house was built in 1913. And um, I love it. I love old houses. And really, with this is kind of funny. When we bought this house, one of the things that we said about it was, hey, it's old. It has all the charm, all the character. But previous owners really did a good job taking care of it. Um, even down to like choices of paint colors, there was nothing terrible or ugly in here. So we said, hey, we can buy this house. We can move in. We don't have to do anything. And of course, we move in. We get all our stuff in. And... <laughs> Just like we always do. Oh, hey, uh, this color isn't quite right. Let's change that. This doesn't go with my rug. Let's change that. And so <laughs> we 
we have found ourselves painting and painting and painting. But fortunately, we love painting. Um, just today, I finished uh, painting my front door. I repainted it three times this week. Uh, I, I first picked a color for my front door that was a bright, sunny yellow. And I put that on the outside and the inside, and it looks wonderful on the outside. It goes with the outside of my house very well. On the inside, it was looking very macaroni and cheese to me. Yes, I saw the picture. (laughs) As a mom of toddlers, I thought, you know what? I have enough craft in my life right now, so we're going to change this up. So I had another uh, paint sample already, and I thought, I'm going to try and paint it this gray color. I did, and it was very much better, but still too dark. So I got one more paint sample. I got one more paint sample yesterday and painted one coat last night and another coat this morning, and it's perfect, and I love it, and I'm not painting it anymore. (laughs) Yeah, when we moved into the house that we live in now, we moved in in 2003, and it was only a year old, and so it really did not need much done except for... A little, they did have the basement was red and and yellow. So except for that, everything was good. But when when you've had a family living in a house for however many years we've been in here now, I guess fifteen years, then it's time to. I mean, we've done mm-hmm. things throughout the years. You know, the kids want their have had their rooms painted a few different times and. Now we're just trying to fix it up to sell so we can buy a house with my parents because they're getting, um, they're getting older. They mean, they can still care for themselves fine, but we decided that we'd rather do that before it becomes necessary. So it'll be easier to, to make that transition soon. I'm kind of excited about it. We've we looked at one house that we really really like, but we're gonna look at look at a few more. Be, you know, it's it'll depend on when we sell this one and when my parents are ready to move. Also, so well, we decided for today's episode. I've been kind of holding on to a few questions that have come in for us, and we like doing a bit of a question and answer episode every once in a while gotten good feedback I know I know Ashley enjoys doing them she's not with us this time but she always says I love doing love doing those ones and now we did get the last episode that you and I did together was about whether Christian men and women can be friends and our first question is actually going to have to do with that a question that had come in about that, but we did get, by and large, very, very positive feedback on that episode. Even today, we got another piece of positive feedback, but there was one guy on Twitter, and I thought I would read you, I thought I'd read what he wrote. This is all he said. Any man that has one-on-one meetings with women in this culture is asking to be falsely accused. So I thought it might be, since he said that on on Twitter, I thought we would maybe just deal with that really quickly. I, I don't think that's really what our podcast was about, which is kind of what I was, I don't think that's what our podcast was specifically about. And and I, I, I think about this two ways, and we're going to 
get into part of this with our first question. But when we talk about the Pence rule, there's the aspect of to protect yourself. And of course, we do believe that wisdom and boundaries are, are good and necessary, but will differ in different relationships. And then secondly, is how it looks. And I know that that's an emphasis. But I think that there are times, I'm not exactly sure what this guy is talking about, because we really didn't talk about meeting one-on-one alone. You know, I mm-hmm. this week I listened to Doctrine and Devotion did an episode on the Pence Rule. And one thing, I've talked to some different pastors who've said, oh, yeah, I will meet at a coffee shop in a public place with a woman congregant. You know, he doesn't have a secretary or, you know, he's got his office out of the church. And so that is the better option when he's meeting with a woman from church is to do it at a local coffee shop or something. So it's not behind closed doors. And so there is an aspect that no matter what you do, that people may have People may criticize or assume things, or I'm not even sure how to say it. So there, there, there are ways in which we do need to be an example to the world. But I think also that no matter what you do, there may also be assumptions. I don't know. What do you think? Yes, I, I completely agree. Um, It's really interesting. I was just talking this week with a friend who is a pastor, and he made the great point that some of your view on the Pence rule and rules like this could depend heavily on your particular vocation. So if you're the vice president of the United States, there's a lot at stake Um, And you may be at great risk for something like a false accusation. And so this could be very, very beneficial to you. If you're a pastor, just like you were talking about, maybe meeting out in a public place is a good idea. And if you're an average individual, there may be less risk involved of something like a false accusation. Not saying at all that the risk isn't there. Um, but just that your vocation itself, what what you do, the nature of these type of relationships uh, matters a lot in um, how critical these types of things are. I also think it's interesting that, uh, Colleen, you and I talked about this um, the other day, thinking about when we are talking about building friendships and uh, sometimes folks who don't Folks who really prefer the Pence rule and would like to see everyone do it, sometimes their argument against it is a a very much of an outlier situation or story, and they'll tell you that they know about a situation that was this, that, or the other, and it's it's a very unusual story and an outlier. And so they will use that as their argument for why everyone needs to do it. And, you know, we looked it up, and this is actually a logical fallacy. It's called the just-in-case fallacy. It's using an outlier situation to represent the average when it doesn't represent the average. It doesn't represent the normal situation. And so um, I do think that, yes, just like we, we said previously in our, ep- our full episode about the Pence Rule, it's, it still just comes back to a matter of using wisdom and 
working that out with your spouse on what wisdom looks like for you in each situation. Right. And, you know, and th- this is going to differ also with each with each couple and their, and maybe even their struggles because mm-hmm. one person talked to me and was saying, you know, my husband has had some, some struggles, some personal struggles and whatnot. And so we have very, very strict rules, especially for him. And those are things that you absolutely have to weigh in. This mm-hmm. is why we said you and your husband, or if you're a man, you and your wife, need to talk about it and and you together can make appropriate boundaries and it may depend on on the situation and we gave some of those examples Mm -hmm. but this might be a good a good segue into our first question and someone wanted to us to talk more about the dangers of adultery and emotional connections and how we can protect ourselves from those. Let me start by saying that wasn't especially the focus of our last episode, mm-hmm. and it also wasn't our only episode on this topic. And so that's why we decided not to go in great detail on that because it's something that I did want to talk with Amy Bird on when we have her on, because I know it's something that she gets questioned about a lot. And a lot of people haven't even read her book yet, but they're, they, they're making assumptions and stuff about it. And so, so, so let, let me say that, especially, I know that people in work situations have even had inappropriate relationships that were just emotional and not physical. And so this is part of what we need to guard ourselves from mm-hmm. is inappropriate emotional connections. One thing we talked about in the episode is even having boundaries on what things you discuss with friends of the opposite sex. I I never I never would go to a male friend and talk about my marriage or mm-hmm. problems in my marriage or anything like that. And so this is something that you have to guard yourself from and and I think when you start relying on somebody of the opposite sex and in, even in an inappropriate way, your husband, your wife should be your closest friend and the person mm-hmm. that you turn to. And if you have marriage issues and old, if you're a, a woman, an older woman, or your pastor is somebody that you should be turning to, not a male friend. So I think having bound, I think one way to protect yourself from those emotional type relationships those inappropriate emotional relationships is having, having boundaries and even talking to your spouse about those. And, and with adultery, I think it's much the same thing is, you know, one of those things is not putting yourself in, in situations that, that could be dangerous. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, Angela? Um, absolutely agree with you. I I was just talking uh, with my husband about this earlier today and about the, the threat of emotional, uh, you know, some people call them emotional affairs. Of course, with the internet, this is this is a danger um, today that it, it is an issue that we need to consider. And, you know, what, what we kept coming back to in our conversation was something similar to what you and I talked about in, in um, our last episode, that 
Part of the issue is that we need to tend our garden at home. I, I remember that you mentioned um, before that you have talked to some women who have told you that because their marriage is difficult and because they don't receive that uh, emotional intimacy from their own husband, anytime any man is kind to them, they they feel attracted to that. And what I see as the remedy to that is to work at home on that that emotional connection, having those emotional needs met at home. And I know that um, for for friends who are in a difficult marriage, you can only control yourself. You can only do what you're supposed to be doing. But um, the hope is that, you know, we can have help from our pastor, help from our elders, help from counselors to work on that and and strengthen our emotional connection and have our emotional needs met from our own husband or for men from their own wife. And that, that I believe is really the best safeguard. Right. And you should not be looking to anybody, even a girlfriend, if you're a woman, for that which only your husband can be to you, mm-hmm. especially that which only the Lord Absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny. um, When I was uh, talking to my friend this week, who's a pastor, uh, one of the things that he said about the different vocations, he he went on to talk about different levels of relationship. And he was saying that with his wife, there is a certain emotional connection there that is unique. No other relationship with anyone else, not mother, not friends, you know, not man friends, not woman friends will come close or should ever come close to that kind of emotional connection. But it doesn't mean that with friends, there's literally zero connection. There is a connection. That's what, that's what allows us to be friendly and to have that genuine brotherly, sisterly affection that's there because we're believers together in the Lord. Um, And so I think that was a really insightful distinction is that there is there's not simply the category where I have an emotional connection or I don't. It's not just on or off. There is a kind of emotional connection that we have with our spouse that should be reserved just for them. Um, what? How does that sound to you, Colleen? Yeah, and and I, I know who you're talking about because this, this pastor actually said that called both you and I friends of his. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that he considers both of us friends as a pastor friend of both of ours. And, but that his wife is aware of any friendship he has, mm-hmm. and that he has a deep intimacy with her that's reserved for her. That's yep. only with her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're, if you're ever in a situation where you are keeping a relationship, whether it's with a woman or a man from your spouse, that mm-hmm. that's not good. Mm-hmm. That's that's not good. Yeah, I, that is something that is really important um, to me in my marriage is we don't have secrets. We don't keep secrets from one another. So, right. And one thing, and you need to remember that when it comes to honesty, and this is something that we teach our children, is being dishonest is not just telling lies. You can be dishonest by neglecting information. Mm-hmm. We've we've told our, taught our children this is 
you know, we'll say you, that was deceitful what you did. And we use the word deceitful Mm -hmm. and they'll say, but I didn't lie. Well, right. Right. You didn't (laughs) lie, but you neglected to tell the truth Mm -hmm. and you, you deceived us by neglecting to tell us what you needed to tell us. And so that goes with your spouse too. That is a really, really great point. Absolutely. So I think we'll move on because we are going to talk about that in more detail, hopefully with our episode with Amy, if, if need be, after we have our episode with Amy, if we need to do another wrap up on the topic, we will. So this, this next question, the interesting thing about this next question is I have gotten various versions from different women. And so it, one reason I picked it as one for us to address, because I keep questions that, that come in, is because I've heard various versions of it. And I thought, you know, this, is, this may be something that listeners are going through and haven't even talked to anybody about. And so the question is, my husband is addicted to pornography. He keeps trying to stop but falls back into it. He's forbidden me from speaking with our pastor. What should I do? I'll let you go first on this one. How generous of you. (laughs) Give you the easy one. (laughs) Um, Well, I'll just dive right in and put my cards on the table. I, my advice to this person, if this was a friend of mine, I would be telling her friend, I think that you need to go on and talk to your pastor, talk to your elders, get some help because um, I, I believe that going along with, with sin and hiding sin is becoming complicit. And um, I, I believe that part of being a helper to your husband is to not help him cover up his sin. And so um, that would be my advice is to go on and talk to that pastor. Or you could even take a, a, a first step of, of asking the husband, um, hey, can we go to counseling together about this? Can I support you by going to counseling with you and really encourage him? He's going to need counseling um, on his own as well. But my advice in general would be to go on and take steps to help bring that out into the light. Right. And one thing that's so important is to understand what repentance is. And so saying I'm sorry is not repentance. Turning away from that sin and going another direction is repentance. And so if it's the sort of thing, I'm really sorry, I'm trying to stop, but it's continuing on, that's not repentance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's, that's when we get into Matthew 18 situation where you, you are to honor your husband and, and you are to voluntarily submit to him. But insofar as it is not contrary to God's word, God's word says you confront someone of their sin and if they continue, you bring another person. So at this point, the right thing to do is to go to your pastor. Right. And they are going to step in and help. We, we, we hope that, you know, you're at a good, um, healthy church where they're going to step in and help and give some support to your husband. And if repentance doesn't come, then we believe that the biblical thing is for them to start church discipline on that. And so that is the support system that the church gives us. Right. And I think that there is a difference sometimes when you have a sin struggle, 
and you are repentant of that sin struggle, and yet you still struggle. Yes. Like that's the key word is yes. You're Absolutely. Struggling to fight against it and maybe still falling into that sin. So mm-hmm. there, there's a difference between I'm sorry and being repentant and really, truly struggling against that sin. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's where the leaders in your local body can really help with that and be discerning on that issue. They can know exactly how to care for you. This is why sometimes in our group, we get questions that are similar to this and folks sometimes want to give us lots of detail and ask for lots of feedback. And sometimes we we will instead just encourage folks, you need to go talk to your pastor. You need to talk to your elders because that's what they're there for to shepherd you and provide the support through these difficult sorts of things. Yeah, I even think of the verse about bearing one another's burdens. Mm, yes. And I I think sometimes we're hesitant to go to our pastors and elders and to the church for the support that we need. I even hear just in regards to other things, somebody that I know with a lot of of health issues said to me, I really need my church. Mm -hmm. to help, but I'm just not very good at asking for help. And Mm -hmm. I understand that because I, I love helping everybody else. I do not like asking anyone for help, but I got so sick. I didn't have a choice. I had to, I had to go to my church. I had to ask for help. And, and it was, it was such a wonderful thing for me to see that. And a lot of that help came without me even asking, but Mm -hmm. don't hesitate regardless of what sin, if your husband is struggling with an ongoing sin and is, is really still, still in it, do not hesitate to go to your pastor. And the other thing is if your husband's really struggling to fight against a sin, encourage him to go to the pastor. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a great, great bit of advice right there. There, there, That is a way that we can, again, I go back to being a helper. I think a lot of us maybe sometimes forget how much we can encourage our husbands. And the other thing is, I would also say, if, if you are a woman that's struggling and knowing how to be a helper to your husband, one thing you can do is find an older woman to talk mm. to. Yes, absolutely. I think yeah. that can be very helpful. You know, it's funny, you you mentioned um, bearing one another's burdens. And I think a lot of times we as ladies will picture that as like maybe getting together for coffee when somebody's gone through something hard and listen to their story and give them a hug and, and we're done. But um, I, I think that it's a great advice to find that older, more mature believing woman um, who can give you godly mentorship. Um, and that is the way of bearing, bearing burdens um, is to, for the older, more mature women to build into the lives of the younger women so that they can gain the wisdom that the older, more mature women have. Right. And I know that, and don't be afraid to go to a woman an older woman, as I've said on another pot, another episode, that a lot of them will be thrilled that you have come to them. And I, mm-hmm. I know it can be a difficult thing to do, but they'll be thrilled when you, a lot of them, hopefully all, will be thrilled when you 
when you come to them. And one thing that I've said before is we always encourage young couples to find an older couple that you can spend time with and and be there for one another and and just, you know, you have that wife you can go to, your husband has that that older husband he can go to. And sometimes I know in a lot of couples, one of one of them, either the man or the woman, will be the one that has tons of friends and maybe the other one doesn't have as many friends or you know, different things like that. So that's why I think it's great to have a couple that you can both go to. That is great advice. Great advice. So the next one, and I'm going to preface this one by saying that we're going to be doing an episode coming up in several weeks, maybe a month about parenting teenagers. But this was, this is something we've gotten different versions of this in the group through you know, through since the group started, actually, it'll come up some and I'll, I'll read the question and then I'll because this is so not theology related, but, <laughs> but it comes up all the time. And this came in. So I thought, let's just deal with it. Should I let my teenager dye her hair or get a piercing? When should I allow makeup? And I guess it can be theological in the sense that we want to make wise decisions as parents and in some of those things. And I know that my own views changed on this. Now I don't have daughters. You have younger kids. So maybe yeah, I, was, I was wondering how we were going to deal with this. I, I have a little bit of a thought and I'm going to just talk about my husband here for a minute. Okay. Um, in, in high school, my husband had long hair. He was a soccer player and um, in the environment that we were in in church, I, I know I shared before that my husband and I grew up at the same church. There was some legalistic thinking going on there. And I know that my mother-in-law got a lot of comments from other folks in the church. I can't believe, believe that you let your son have that long hair. It's so rebellious. But you know what? She really stood her ground and said, you know what, it, it's, it's just hair. You know, he, he's not behaving in a rebellious way. It, it, it was something that she allowed freedom on. And my husband thinks back about that often. I have heard him retell that story to other adults many times about how much he appreciated knowing that his mom um, stood up to other people who, who said, Hey, you shouldn't be doing this, but there really was no reason uh, behind that thought. And so that meant a lot to him. And so I, I think about that. I, you know, my kids are really little, so I have some time before I have to cross this bridge. I, I will say I'm not looking forward to it. I know it's not going to be easy. So, but that's sort of my my thoughts on that for now. Yeah. And I think probably we're dealing with three different things. My, my parents were very much like your in-laws and that my mom said, yes, you can, you know, she would let me dye my hair and, and things like that, that were not, I mean, that could grow out and, you know, color of hair or length of hair. It's not equal to godliness or ungodliness. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, again, this is the sort of thing that as far as when 
That's that really is going to differ with each child. And it's also going to be what you and your husband are comfortable with. And and for us, one thing we did with our teenagers on some things like that, because I think all but one of my children has dyed their hair at some point. And it's if they have been responsible and they're getting good grades mm-hmm. and and obedient, then we are more apt to say, yes, we will allow this thing. And so we we really look at some things. There are things that are necessary. I have to feed my children and clothe them and provide a, <laughs> a warm house in the winter and things like that. I do not have to provide hair dye. So there's something... <laughs> that are privileges. Right. And, right. And so we talk in our house a lot about earning those, those privileges and extra things. So, but there's also things where you may say, you know what, I'm, I don't think you're old enough. I know that as far as like getting ears pierced, there's, there's some people that in our group who's, you know, pierce their baby's ears at a year mm-hmm. old. And then there's, there's some that say not till they're 10 or not till they're 16. My mom, I really wanted to get a second set of piercings went in my ears and I forget how old I was, but my mom said, when you turn this age, you may. Mm-hmm. And I think, and they ended up closing up anyways, but um, I, with that, it's not, it's not like a tattoo right, or, or something like that. I mean, my oldest son has a tattoo. I'm not really thrilled about it. I'm not opposed to tattoos, but as soon as he was old enough to do it, he went and did it without telling me. I mean, he was an adult and he came home and showed me and I was like, uh, part of me was like, you're going to regret that when you're older. I mean, I didn't say that to him, but that was just what was going through my head and he does not listen to the podcast. So, and as far as piercings, again, I, it probably depends on what what piercing it is and and what you feel comfortable with. These there's just not black and white answers to this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I I will tell you what my what my brother in law has done with my niece in regards to makeup because she's at the age middle school where her friends are starting to wear some makeup and so. They they got her some makeup, but she, that she can put on when she's at home, and she's she's not allowed to wear it out of the house yet. But, but she's allowed to wear lip gloss, and so mm-hmm. they're just saying this is what you can wear at this age instead of just all of a sudden, you know, watching those YouTube videos and putting right. on like a full adult face of makeup. <laughs> <laughs> we're not uh, we're not doing uh, highlights and. And uh, strobing and all of that stuff at age 11, I suppose. Right. Well, I don't know if you've <laughs> thought. Got, I'm 37 and I still cannot do all of that. Uh, well, I have another. So that's that's my one niece. She's younger. I have a niece that's older than that. And, you know, she, so at, at 15, she's almost 16. At 15, she her makeup looks perfect. And now on YouTube, they have like these makeup videos that they they can learn to do like professional makeup and and I'm thinking it's not fair she doesn't have to go through that awkward mm-hmm. makeup stage <laughs> that the I rest of us say, you know, went look, through <laughs> man I look back at some of the pictures of myself in early high school with you know the very very white face very <laughs> the yeah. very uh, very um, 
raspberry lips. <laughs> Just that. Uh, oh, it's funny. Yeah. Awkward. Yes. Yes. Awkward. <laughs> and we, we all were there, but the kids today, they can like go to Sephora. I don't think Sephora was around when I was young. Go to Sephora and learn how to, to put makeup on. So maybe it's a good thing, but I think the awkward phase does us does us good. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. What I mean, what else do you commiserate about when you get older? <laughs> exactly. So this one, this one, we're actually going to be doing another episode. I, at some point in the future, I'm going to do an episode with Andrew about the reformed and dispensational views of the Sabbath. But I thought this would be fun to talk about because it came up a few times. There was a post in the group and I've heard it a few times in regards to our Sabbath episode. And this is basically people who said, well, I grew up dispensational, but I grew up being taught that we had to honor the Sabbath. And why is that? You know, some people were saying, you know, my parents are still that way. And I talked, I think, on the Sabbath episode a little bit how that was a bit the case when I was growing up, although I don't really know the sat the I don't really know the theology behind it, and I I don't think I told this story in the Sabbath episode, so I'll tell it now. And I'm sorry if it's repeat, but my my great grandparents very strong dispensationals, and they were my grandfather. My great grandfather was a farmer, and this is one of those family stories that Grandma wrote down, and it was her father. And they they farmed corn and the other farmers came and told him there's I think it was like on a Friday morning, there's going to be or a Saturday morning. I think there's going to be a really big storm coming in Monday. So we've got to to harvest as much as we can Saturday and Sunday. And and uh, my great grandfather said, no, we will not be harvesting on Sunday. That is the Lord's day. And we will pray and, and the Lord will provide. And that's what he did. And his neighbors were all harvesting. And thankfully, the, the storm that came in did not ruin their crops at all because there was still quite a bit. It takes a long time when they had as much farmland as they had to to get all of that corn. And here they, they were not reformed in any way. And 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 then even, you know, my my grandparents, I don't think later on that they had as strict a view, but even when I was growing up, there was a respect for the Sabbath, that, that the Sabbath is, it's the Lord's Day, we go to church in the morning, we go to church at night, and, and yet it's not from a Reformed perspective. Have you seen this at all, Angela? Yes. Um even in my own family growing up, I would not say that the understanding of the Sabbath was the same as the Reformed understanding, but um, there was certainly a respect for the Lord's Day. Um, we, unless someone was sick, we we attended um, the church service. We, my my parents were not. Um, in favor of my brothers, any of us really, although I didn't play a sport that this would have happened, but not, you know, we didn't play sports on Sundays. We didn't do sports game on Sundays. And so um, there was certainly a respect for the Lord's day. Um, I, I do not remember hearing the idea 
for example, that um, our Sabbath rest is in Christ, and and that is the definition of the Sabbath now. I don't remember hearing that until really just recent years. Um, I'd never heard that growing up. I, I can't say that I was uh, taught the Sabbatarian view either, but I certainly was not taught not to respect the Lord's Day, if that makes sense. There were also folks at my church growing up who I do think observed the Lord's Day this say in a very similar way to to the way that the Reformed understanding would. Um, now, I'll just ask you, Colleen, as a part of this question, um, do, does the Reformed view, is the Reformed view that we bring over all of the Old Testament Sabbath laws into the Lord's Day. No, and that's one thing we talked about because there was a there was a conversation in the group, and I know some there was somebody who thought that maybe that's what we were saying, and so this this is very different because it is the Lord's Day, and so while we still have the Sabbath because because it goes back to creation. So the the Mosaic Sabbath and the Christian Sabbath are different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's, the, but the, re, the reason why we do still honor the Sabbath is because it's not grounded in Moses. It's grounded in right. creation. It's grounded in right. And it points back to Genesis. But there is also a change where we do not, we no longer are under the civil and ceremonial laws. Mm-hmm. So there are aspects that of, if you know any Orthodox Jews, I've got some very Orthodox Hasidic family that is very serious. You know, they don't cook on the Lord, they don't, not the Lord's Day, on their Sabbath, and they don't drive a car, and they don't turn lights on, and things like that. So, and some of that is not even, that's just an interpretation of what they think the law is, mm-hmm. is saying. Mm-hmm. So, so, but the so civil that, and ceremonial aspects of, of the law that you would see a lot of, of Jews holding to in their observance of the Sabbath is, is not what we are bound to. So what we see as far as... Um, not being able to do any work. And then we, you know, we had something in our group recently where, where there was uh, someone posted something about an appliance that was able to even be put into Sabbath mode where it wouldn't work from sundown Saturday to sundown Sunday. Uh, yeah. in Sabbath where, mode, like it wouldn't right, right, right. do uh, ice or something. Right. Um, sundown Friday to sundown yeah, Saturday. That's right. That's right. Um, we we don't believe the reformed view is not that um, that all of those ceremonial laws and civil laws come over, but rather that the substance of the Sabbath is what continues. That is, that we are to rest from our worldly pursuits and instead be taken up with the worship of the Lord for the whole day. Yes, ex- exactly. That and now in regards to why some people historically have honored the Sabbath. I, I really need to, to study this more. I did a tiny bit of reading, and one thing I did, I did find is that there is a history among Baptists of 
a view on the Sabbath. And so that may be what what some people have seen. And if you go, if you look, we talked on the Sabbath episode about the different blue laws, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where you, you didn't, there was lots of things that were not open on the Sabbath. And that was right. That was even, and, and that still exists in some places. So yep. I don't know the history, but it's something that maybe we'll have to address on the next episode. We just uh, moved here from Alabama, and there are certainly still places there um, that that don't. Uh, well, even think about there are still businesses that don't open on Sunday. Some do it by choice. Um, there, there were blue laws in certain places in Alabama where alcohol couldn't be sold on Sunday. Um, just lots of different versions of that um, still exist in some places. This is my guess: is that you know the 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 question originally was about dispensationalism. I know that the dispensational view is uh, uh, just of the law itself and how that affects us today is very different than the covenantal view. Um, So I I know that they would say that we are now in the dispensation of grace, which is different than the dispensation of law. and so I, I do think there's a way in which um, a non-Sabbatarian view is maybe a natural outcropping of dispensationalism. But the, the lady who was asking the question was saying that she grew up in a dispensational family that did honor the Lord's Day this way. And I think some of that is just because of what you're talking about. Historically speaking, that was the view and the prevailing view. And the view that we don't need to honor the Lord's Day in, in this sort of way is really a very new view, historically speaking. Right. Well, and the other thing I'm thinking about is that a lot of the early dispensationalists came out of Presbyterianism. And mm-hmm, so... Mm-hmm. And some of it may have just been a matter of practice, but you hit on something that really is at the foundation of the different views on the Sabbath, and that is a different view of the law. And and that's that's really where the difference lies, is not specifically a different view of the Sabbath, but a different view of the law. But I was actually thinking of of Chick-fil-A. As far as I know, they are not reformed. Right. I was and, thinking of them as well. <laughs> but I remember one time, and it was, a, I can't remember, it was one some natural disaster, and Chick-fil-A was making a bunch of chicken sandwiches to give to people that were part of this natural disaster, and it happened to be on a Sunday. And so it was kind of a news article. I think uh-huh. this is a great example, uh-huh. actually. So it was a news article that that said you know, Chick-fil-A is now going to be making sandwiches on, on Sunday, just this one time. And so that was a work of necessity right. to feed these people who had lost their home or could not return to their homes and needed to eat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's move on. Now, this came up in the group, and 
Angela and I are just going to briefly address this because we are going to be planning an episode on justification and sanctification, just a whole episode devoted to that. But I thought it would be good to just briefly address this. And the question it came came in the group was, is sanctification monergistic or synergistic? And this is like this is like the the question question of the day. You know, people I see it in so many different reformed groups is people will say, is sanctification monergistic or synergistic? And within this questions, this question, there's an assumption if you say monergistic, then you're gonna have one side saying, Oh, you must be antinomian. If you say synergistic, then you'll have another side saying, wait, you are you are adding works to salvation. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so Angela, why don't you start on answering this? <laughs> Although, yeah, I'm just leaving you with the <laughs> ones today. Uh, this, one I, this one I do not mind. Um, I, this uh, is such a freeing one for me. Sanctification is monergistic. Um, I, what I think is so wonderful, um, I'll just read from the Westminster Shorter. What is I was just going to su- suggest you that. Want so to? You, you want to? You want to do it? You have no, it? You go ahead. I okay, was going to okay. suggest we do that. So that's perfect. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. What I love about this is it it says sanctification is the work of God's free grace, making it monergistic. Um, you know, we had some discussion in the group about this, just like you said. You know, when you say that sanctification is monergistic, there will definitely be folks that come out and say, well, hey, wait a minute, we, we have to do good works. And um, the wonderful thing that I see about this is that saying that God does the work in our heart um, by his free grace does not let me off the hook for doing works. Just like in justification being monergistic, um, regeneration, monergistic, um, because regeneration is monergistic, does not negate our response to the gospel. It's still a real response. It's still, it's still faith and putting trust in Christ. It's still something that happens that's real that, that was my response. But God enabled it because it was monergistic. In sanctification, I think of it as being very similar. God is the one making the change happen in my heart. That enables me to do the works. The works are still real. They're still happening. There's still something that I do, but that is a fruit of sanctification rather than the sanctification itself. So the fruit does not sanctify you. Right. That's exactly right. You said it very well on the thread in the group. We don't sanctify ourselves. We, I, I wrote, I, I copied and pasted a couple little pieces. I'm going to put... R. Scott Clark has a, a on one page on his on his website heidelblog.net, he has a bunch of sanctification resources and mm-hmm. I've read most of them multiple times, but I wrote down a, a couple of the things he has that I think would be helpful. The first one says, do we not exert effort in sanctification? 
To answer this question, let's go back to Shorter Catechism 35, where sanctification is said to be the work of God's free grace. Mm -hmm. There is work involved in our sanctification, but the subject of the work is God's free grace. It is God who works sanctity in us. He does not work sanctity in us because we have met a prior condition. Mm -hmm. And then he also says, there is no question whether believers must be sanctified and whether they must resist sin. The question is whether our sanctification and our resisting sin is a part of the instrument of our salvation or whether it contributes to our salvation Mm -hmm. or whether our resisting sin is the consequence and evidence of our gracious salvation. And so the other thing is, I think that's important, and I wrote this down from the same article, is that he says, salvation does certainly include our justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so when we say salvation is by grace alone, we are talking about all of those, all of it, Mm -hmm. every part of it. So the Lord, we absolutely are are to resist sin. We absolutely are to love God's law and hate unrighteousness. And we are absolutely to fight against unrighteousness and and to to live in obedience. We are not because because it is by God's grace, every last bit of it does not excuse you from living in obedience to it. And any person Mm -hmm. who has been justified and united to Christ will be sanctified. Mm -hmm. Amen. And that, and that's, that's, I, it's a, it's a wonderful comforting thing as we struggle against sin to know that we are being sanctified. So the, it is God that is sanctifying us. He is the one who is working that in us. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a little of, you know, God does his part. I do my part. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're good in the end. It, it's not that way. Our sanctific the, the good works that we do are the fruit of the sanctification that the Lord is doing in us. Right. I love, uh, our Scott Clark said in an episode of, Heidelcast. Uh, it's not that God says, you know, I got you here. Now you take it from here. Um, it's it's not that He says, well, I do my part and you do your part. Um, it is a work of God's free grace, and that is just as you said, extremely comforting. It's you know when you when you have those times when you're down and you know I, I'm just not where I want to be. It's a reminder to us of where we are going to be in glorification. And that, that work is God, that God is going to take us, um, get us to that state. And um, that's when we, the struggle will be over. Yeah. If it was dependent on me, I, I just don't, I don't have much hope. And <laughs> I think it's over. <laughs> yeah. When we do our episode on justification and sanctification, we'll dig in a little deeper. I think one of the problems is that a lot of people misunderstand what it is that sanctification is. Mm -hmm. And so I think people think of sanctification uh, as our good works instead of our good works as the fruit Mm -hmm. of what the Lord is doing. Exactly right. It's a really, really important distinction. So, Mm -hmm. So this is the last one. And 
this this is something that that came in just this week and i think for for people maybe even new to the reformed faith it's it's a difficult one to understand and that is apostasy so i don't know about most of you but i know for me i have friends who like in high school they were dogmatic about their faith i would have never questioned their salvation they were out there sharing the gospel wearing the christian t-shirts involved in youth group etc cetera, etc cetera. and then there came a point where they just completely left the church never to return and you know they may now say i i don't even believe in god anymore and so how are we to think about people now what one thing i do want to just briefly briefly talk about is i do think that some of the passages that we see in the new testament which point to apostasy do often point to people like our covenant children who are baptized and part of the covenant community but then leave and so they never they they never were in christ but they were part of the covenant community. Right. They were part of the visible church, receiving the benefits of hearing the word preached, um, having a having been baptized, um, and then they have walked away and become a covenant breaker and you know, shown themselves to not not be in the faith. And so some of those verses may be talking about that. The very first thing that came to my mind when I read this question was um, I started thinking about the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. And I just wanted to read a teensy bit out of the Westminster Confession about perseverance of the saints. Um, From the first paragraph, they whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. What this is saying is that if you are called and sanctified by His Spirit, if you are regenerated, if you are united to Christ, you cannot totally and finally fall away from that salvation. What I think is so helpful, though, the third section of this chapter, nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. So this is telling us that it is possible for those who are true believers to go through periods of time that are very dark and where they have fallen into, it says, grievous sin and fall into very difficult times where they are not walking with the Lord But if they are truly in the Lord, if they are elect and they have they have put their trust in Jesus Christ, they cannot 
permanently fall away. And so, you know, I'm thinking back to the case of covenant children. We hope in the Lord. We pray for them. We long for the day when they return. And we keep looking to the Lord and His grace to bring them back. And, you know, I think that that's the case of covenant children, but it's also other, other friends that we know. We keep giving them the gospel. Why am I bringing up perseverance? Um, I know somebody listening right now might be thinking, okay, the question was apostasy. Um, Okay, well, here's why. In our group, it comes up sometimes, and I know many of us have come across friends whose assurance is really suffering because they still struggle with sin. And sometimes they ask, this comes up in our group, does this mean I'm apostate? And so what I wanted to point out is that struggling with sin isn't apostasy. The reason why this is an important distinction is because in some other traditions, it is taught that it's possible for true believers who were once justified to fall away and become apostate. But the Reformed teaching on apostasy is that that isn't possible. We believe an apostate is someone who permanently walks away and never comes back. Right. When, and just, or sometimes they may walk away from the faith because they were not a Christian to begin with. They may become a Christian later in life, but it would be like a child. Exactly. Who's part of the covenant community. There can also be an adult who's part of the covenant community who who makes a public profession of faith, but they actually were never, never had saving faith. Exactly. Exactly. The idea is that they, they um, were not a true believer in the first place. Right. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I've seen that with my, with my own son that claimed to be a believer, made a profession of faith, and and then walked away. So yeah, I'm glad that you brought this up, Angela, because I do think that there are people who struggle with feeling like, well, what if I what if I'm not a true believer because I struggle with with sin? But we all struggle, and I think struggle is the important word. We're struggling right. because we don't want to continue in that sin. Right. As far as, a, you know, just the term apostasy, if, if, if someone never comes back to the Lord, then I think that we would say that they did not have a true conversion in the first place. Is that what you would say, Colleen? Yeah, I think that that is, is often the case. I think sometimes people that are in the Lord may have a short period of, of walking away that they should not. Mm-hmm. But I think that when we see someone completely turn their back on the Lord and walk away and deny him, then they probably were not in him. Mm-hmm. 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 So that, and that, that's difficult because we, we probably all have people that we love that fit that. Mm-hmm. And, and we mourn and, and we pray for them. Mhm. And you know it's it's a sad thing my my own son who as a teenager as a little kid I I never questioned whether he knew the Lord he was he was you know very 
compassionate and would share the gospel with people. And he really, you know, just completely walked away. And so I don't believe that I don't believe that he was, he ever had saving faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that he was part of the covenant community, but he did not have, have a saving faith. So I think we should do a, yeah, about that. This oh, fun. Well, this one isn't, sometimes we do ones that are just so obvious. I'm going to do kind of a little bit of an obvious one today. Sometimes it's something that might sound, sound good even to people in our circles, but then you think about it a little bit more and think, eh, yeah, about that. <laughs> but <laughs> so this, this has been, I'm not going to say the name, but it's been around and it's one of these these uh, word of faith preachers that's, I forget how much money it is that he's raising for his new airplane, but I want to mm. say it's like 50 million or yeah, more than that. Lot. Yeah. Because yeah, he needs, he needs a new airplane. And he said something like, do you think Jesus would ride a donkey in this day? <laughs> <laughs> well, and so I don't even know how to respond to that because Jesus was not out there raising lots of money so that he could have riches either. <laughs> Send me your denarii so that I can buy a very fancy chariot. Right. Exactly. He, yeah. The son of man <laughs> has no place to lay his head, folks. <laughs> I don't think that Jesus would be riding in a jet. I do not. Uh, I, he right. certainly would not be. He certainly would not be proclaiming a false gospel so that people would send him their money. And 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 that is really the difficulty here is that these charlatans they they are proclaiming a false gospel. They are making material wealth part of. Uh, salvation part of your faith and that is false um and so and they're doing it for financial gain and so we certainly know that jesus would not be doing that today right and that that's the sad thing my my husband's my husband's grandma you know later in life she was she was a christian but she did not get very good training in in theology in her church. She was a a, a Wisconsin Synod Lutheran, but there's in her later days when she couldn't leave the house a lot and and Christian TV was newer and it was TBN and and stuff and she didn't know any better on on some of the stuff and so she would send she had hardly any money. And yet she would send it in. And some of these ministries would have like around Christmas time, you send us this much money, we'll send you a Christmas ornament. And so my husband and his sister every year for Christmas would get whatever little gifts she got from the ministries she would send money into. Mm -hmm. And like she's sending her last pennies into these ministries. I think that's, that's a sad thing. And it, Mm -hmm. 
you know, a lot of a lot of these people are struggling financially, but they're sending in their last five dollars towards this, yep. however many million dollar jet. And I, I don't know any PCA or OPC or URC <laughs> pastor with the jet or some of the, you know, multi-million dollar estates. Well, you know, they just haven't tapped into that prosperity gospel yet. <laughs> Not enough faith. And, you know, it it's such a it's such a sad thing to watch too because they're people that are listening to these these false teachers are being told if you just have enough faith, Jesus wants you to be happy, he wants you to be healthy and he wants you to be wealthy. Mm-hmm. And and so they're they're told if you just have enough faith, then you'll have these things. And then when those things don't come along, then you have these people thinking, well, I must not have enough faith or yep. God would give me these things too. Yep. Yep. That's, that is absolutely uh, the outcome of this type of teaching is that when the person is not healed or when the money doesn't come to pay the bills, what are they left with except questioning I'm, I didn't have enough faith. This is why. And often they are directly told this uh, right. by these type of ministries. It is spiritual abuse. It is lies and it's a false gospel. And it is, um, like you said, it's very, very sad because many of who they are preying on are people who are very poor or people who are already very sick and desperate and what those people need is the real gospel. Right. And that and that's that's exactly what we need to remember. You may even have people like this in in your life. I saw a story recently and it was about a girl who grew up in that sort of thing and she had some illness and her parents did not get her the medical mm-hmm. care that she needed and now she has long she's suffering the long-term effects of not getting the medical care that she needed and of course she was a child so she could not make that decision what happens a lot of times is that people that have grown up in that sort of thing grow up and are very bitter against yeah. against the church and it's because they don't know the real church they right. don't know the true gospel and it's a reminder that sometimes you may have a coworker that says, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And yet they, they don't know the gospel at all. And so we, we have to be sharing the gospel even with people who might say, hey, I'm a Christian. In fact, let me just end with this, this neat little story. After our NAR episode, I got an email from a woman in South Africa who was coming out of of some of that stuff. And I was actually able to send her information on a Reformed church. And so she was, I actually have met a couple, a couple women now from South Africa who came out of similar type NAR stuff. Mm. And, and they really want to know the truth. Sometimes you'll have, situations like Justin Peters will talk about where you're not getting healed and start searching the scriptures and realizes, wow, what I've been taught this whole time is, is not even biblical. Yeah. So it's amazing. 
some of the folks that come out of this. Actually, you know what? There is a big part of it that's very encouraging to me. You know, when I first started learning about uh, this type of false gospel, prosperity gospel, and NAR stuff, I came across Costi Hinn, who is Benny Hinn's nephew. And I came across his testimony. He was sharing his testimony on Justin Peters's radio program. And it's an amazing testimony. It is so encouraging. The Lord will not leave his sheep in that situation. He brings all of his sheep to himself. And it is just amazing uh, what his testimony was like. Um, He was working for his uncle on tour uh, with Benny Hinn and all of that. And, you know, he started reading some passages out of the Bible and he was actually supposed to be preparing to preach a certain section of the Bible. And he pulled out uh, a study Bible and started reading some of the notes and the Lord just used his word to convict him. "Uh Oh, I'm a false teacher. And he saw the truth and was saved through reading the word. And his testimony is amazing. But I just remember being really, really encouraged by that because I've also met uh, folks like you have, Colleen, that are coming out of NAR kind of churches. And his testimony is really encouraging. I'll link that because I've seen that interview also. I'm going to link that in the episode notes. If you haven't seen that, it's definitely worth watching, even if you don't have any friends or family involved in that sort of thing. It's just such an encouraging testimony. Same thing with with Justin's really. And I'll link I'll link his on there too, because there there people do do come out of that stuff because they start reading the Bible and mm-hmm. because they have people in their lives that are sharing the gospel. So Absolutely. and it's it's encouraging maybe if you have friend or family member that's in it and you're feeling discouraged, I think it would be encouraging for you mm-hmm. to watch this, maybe even send Justin Peters' testimony or Costian's testimony to to your friend or family member caught up in that stuff. So, well, before we go, I did want to mention if you would like to support Theology Gals, we do have some extra expenses coming up. You know, we don't have a lot of expenses monthly, but with some of the new things we're doing, it's just costing a little bit of extra money. If you'd like to support us monthly, there will be a link to our Patreon in the episode notes. You can even support us just a few dollars a month, $3 or $5, or I will put a link if you would like to give us a one-time gift. And of course, we can always use your prayers. We're just working on trying to get our new website up hopefully soon and just some some different things for the podcast that that we're having to do so thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next week